Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001's Best of Jack London. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Tonight we begin a two-part story from Jack London called Fini, which takes us up to the frozen Yukon and pits man against nature. And now part one of Fini by Jack London. It was the last of Morganson's bacon. In all his life he had never pampered his stomach. In fact, his stomach had been a sort of negligible quantity that bothered him little, and about which he thought less. But now, in the long absence of wanted delights, the keen yearning of his stomach was tickled usually by the sharp, salty bacon. His face had a wistful, hungry expression. The cheeks were hollow, and the skin seemed stretched a trifle tightly across the cheekbones. His pale blue eyes were troubled. There was that in them that showed the haunting imminence of something terrible. Doubt was in them, and anxiety, and foreboding. The thin lips were thinner than they were made to be, and they seemed to hunger towards the polished frying pan. He sat back and drew forth a pipe. He looked into it with sharp scrutiny and tapped it emptily on his open palm. He turned the hair-sealed tobacco pouch inside out and dusted the lining, treasuring carefully each flake and mite of tobacco that his efforts gleaned. The result was scarce a thimbleful. He searched in his pockets and brought forward, between thumb and forefinger, tiny pinches of rubbish. Here and there in this rubbish were crumbs of tobacco. These he segregated with microscopic care, though he occasionally permitted small particles of foreign substance to accompany the crumbs to the hoard in his palm. He even deliberately added small, semi-hard, woolly fluffs that had come originally from the coat lining, and that had lain for long months in the bottoms of the pockets. At the end of fifteen minutes he had the pipe part filled. He lighted it from the campfire, and sat forward on the blankets, toasting his moccasined feet and smoking parsimoniously. When the pipe was finished, he sat on, brooding into the dying flame of the fire. Slowly the worry went out of his eyes, and resolve came in. Out of the chaos of his fortunes, he had finally achieved a way. But it was not a pretty way. His face had become stern and wolfish, and the thin lips were drawn very tightly. With resolve came action. He pulled himself stiffly to his feet and proceeded to break camp. He packed the rolled blankets, the frying pan, rifle, and axe on the sled, and passed a lashing around the load. Then he warmed his hands at the fire and pulled on his mittens. He was footsore and limped noticeably as he took his place at the head of the sled. When he put the looped haul rope over his shoulder and linked his weight against it to start the sled, he winced. His flesh was galled by many days of contact with the haul rope. The trail led along the frozen breast of the Yukon. At the end of four hours, he came around a bend and entered the town of Minto. 
It was perched on top of a high earth bank in the midst of a clearing, and consisted of a roadhouse, a saloon, and several cabins. He left his sled at the door and entered the saloon. Enough for a drink? he asked, laying an apparently empty gold sack upon the bar. The barkeeper looked sharply at it and him, then set out a bottle and a glass. Never mind the dust, he said. Go on, take it, Morganson insisted. The barkeeper held the sack mouth downward over the scales and shook it, and a few flakes of gold dust fell out. Morganson took the sack from him, turned it inside out, and dusted it carefully. I thought there was a half dollar in it, he said. Not quite, answered the other, but near enough. I'll get it back with the down weight on the next comer. Morganson shyly poured the whiskey into the glass, partly filling it. "'Go on, make it a man's drink,' the barkeeper encouraged. Morganson tilted the bottle and filled the glass to the brim. He drank the liquor slowly, pleasuring in the fire of it that bit his tongue, sank hotly down his throat, and with warm, gentle caresses permeated his stomach. "'Scurvy, eh?' the barkeeper asked. "'Yeah, a touch of it.' he answered. But I haven't begun to swell yet. Maybe I can get to Daia and fresh vegetables and beat it out. Kind of all in, I'd say. The other laughed sympathetically. No dogs, no money, and the scurvy. I'd try spruce tea if I was you. At the end of half an hour, Morganson said goodbye and left the saloon. He put his galled shoulder to the haul rope and took the river trails south. An hour later he halted. An inviting swale left the river and led off to the right at an acute angle. He left his sled and limped up the swale for half a mile. Between him and the river was three hundred yards of flat ground covered with cottonwoods. He crossed the cottonwoods to the bank of the Yukon. The trail went by just beneath, but he did not descend to it. South toward Selkirk he could see the trail widen its sunken length through the snow for over a mile. But to the north, in the direction of Minto, a tree-covered outjut in the bank a quarter of a mile away screened the trail from him. He seemed satisfied with the view, and returned to the sled the way he had come. He put the haul rope over his shoulder and dragged the sled up the swale. The snow was unpacked and soft, and it was hard work. The runners clogged and stuck, and he was panting severely ere he had covered the half-mile. Night had come on by the time he had pitched his small tent, set up the sheet-iron stove, and chopped a supply of firewood. He had no candles, and contented himself with a pot of tea before crawling into his blankets. In the morning, as soon as he got up, he drew on his mittens, pulled the flaps of his cap down over his ears, and crossed through the cottonwoods to the Yukon. He took his rifle with him. As before, he did not descend the bank. He watched the empty trail for an hour, beating his hands and stamping his feet to keep up the circulation, then returned to the tent for breakfast. There was little tea left in the canister, half a dozen drawings at most, but so meager a pinch did he put in the teapot that he bade fair to extend the lifetime of the tea indefinitely. His entire food supply consisted of half a sack of flour and a partful can of baking powder. He made biscuits and ate them slowly, chewing each mouthful with infinite relish. When he had had three, he called a halt. He debated a while, reached for another biscuit, then hesitated. He
He turned to the part sack of flour, lifted it, and judged its weight. "'I'm good for a couple of weeks,' he spoke aloud. "'Maybe three, he added, as he put the biscuits away. Again he drew on his mittens, pulled down his ear flaps, took the rifle, and went out to his station on the riverbank. He crouched in the snow, himself unseen, and watched. After a few minutes of inaction, the frost began to bite in, and he rested the rifle across his knees and beat his hands back and forth. Then the sting in his feet became intolerable, and he stepped back from the bank and tramped heavily up and down among the trees. But he did not tramp long at a time. Every several minutes he came to the edge of the bank and peered up and down the trail, as though by sheer will he could materialize the form of a man upon it. The short morning passed, though it had seemed century-long to him, and the trail remained empty. It was easier in the afternoon, watching by the bank. The temperature rose, and soon the snow began to fall, dry and fine and crystalline. There was no wind, and it fell straight down, in quiet monotony. He crouched with eyes closed, his head upon his knees, keeping his watch upon the trail with his ears. But no whining of dogs, churning of sleds, nor cries of drivers broke the silence. With twilight he returned to the tent, cut a supply of firewood, ate two biscuits, and crawled into his blankets. He slept restlessly, tossing about and groaning, and at midnight he got up and ate another biscuit. Each day grew colder. Four biscuits could not keep up the heat of his body, despite the quantities of hot spruce tea he drank, and he increased his allowance, morning and evening, to three biscuits. In the middle of the day he ate nothing, contenting himself with several cups of excessively weak real tea. This program became routine. In the morning, three biscuits, at noon, real tea, and at night, three biscuits. In between, he drank spruce tea for his scurvy. He caught himself making larger biscuits, and after a severe struggle with himself, went back to the old size. On the fifth day the trial returned to life. To the south a dark object appeared, and grew larger. Morganson became alert. He worked his rifle, ejecting a loaded cartridge from the chamber, by the same action replacing it with another, and returning the ejected cartridge into the magazine. He lowered the trigger to half-cock, and drew on his mitten to keep the trigger hand warm. As the dark object came nearer, he made it out to be a man, without dogs or sled, traveling light. He grew nervous, cocked the trigger, then put it back to half-cock again. The man developed into an Indian, and Morganson, with a sigh of disappointment, dropped the rifle across his knees. The Indian went on past and disappeared towards Minto, behind the outjutting clump of trees. But Morganson conceived an idea. He changed his crouching spot to a place where cottonwood limbs projected on either side of him. Into these with his axe he chopped two broad notches. Then in one of the notches he rested the barrel of his rifle and glanced along the sights. He covered the trail thoroughly in that direction. He turned about, rested the rifle in the other notch, and looking along the sights, swept the trail to the clump of trees behind which it disappeared. He never descended to the trail. A man traveling the trail could have no knowledge of his lurking presence on the bank above. The snow surface was unbroken. There was no place where his tracks left the main trail. As the nights grew longer, 
his periods of daylight watching of the trail grew shorter. Once a sled went by with jingling bells in the darkness, and with sullen resentment he chewed his biscuits and listened to the sounds. Chance conspired against him. Faithfully he had watched the trail for ten days, suffering from the cold all the prolonged torment of the damned, and nothing had happened. Only an Indian traveling light had passed in. Now, in the night, when it was impossible for him to watch, men and dogs and a sled loaded with life passed out, bound south to the sea and the sun and civilization. So it was that he conceived of the sled for which he waited. It was loaded with life, his life. His life was fading, fainting, gasping away in the tent in the snow. He was weak from lack of food and could not travel of himself. But on the sled for which he waited were dogs that would drag him, food that would fan up the flame of his life, money that would furnish sea and sun and civilization. Sea and sun and civilization became terms interchangeable with life, his life, and they were loaded there on the sled for which he waited. The idea became an obsession, and he grew to think of himself as the rightful and deprived owner of the sled load of life. His flour was running short, and he went back to two biscuits in the morning and two biscuits at night. His weakness increased, and the cold bit in more savagely, and day by day he watched by the dead trail that would not live for him. At last the scurvy entered upon its next stage. The skin was no longer able to cast off the impurity of the blood, and the result was that the body began to swell. His ankles grew puffy, and the ache in them kept him awake long hours at night. Next the swelling jumped to his knees, and the sum of his pain was more than doubled. Then there came a cold snap. The temperature went down and down, forty, fifty, sixty degrees below zero. He had no thermometer, but this he knew by the signs and natural phenomena understood by all men in that country. The crackling of water thrown on the snow, the swift sharpness of the bite of the frost, and the rapidity with which his breath froze and coated the canvas walls and the roof of the tent. Vainly he fought the cold and strove to maintain his watch on the bank. In his weak condition he was an easy prey, and the frost sank its teeth deep into him before he fled away to the tent and crouched by the fire. His nose and cheeks were frozen and turned black, and his left thumb had frozen inside the mitten. He concluded that he would escape with the loss of the first joint. Then it was, beaten into the tent by the frost, that the trail, with monstrous irony, suddenly teemed with life. Three sleds went by the first day, and two the second. Once, during each day, he fought his way out to the bank, only to succumb and retreat, and each of the two times, within half an hour after he retreated, a sled went by. The cold snap broke, and he was able to remain by the bank once more, and the trail died again. For a week he crouched and watched, and never life stirred along it, not a soul passed in or out. He had cut down to one biscuit night and morning, and somehow he did not seem to notice it. Sometimes he marveled at the way life remained in him. He never would have thought it possible to endure so much. When the trail fluttered anew with life, it was life with which he could not cope. A detachment of the Northwest Police went by, a score of them, with many sleds and dogs, and he cowered down on the bank above, and they were unaware of the menace of death that lurked in the form of a dying man beside the trail. 
his frozen thumb gave him a great deal of trouble. While watching by the bank, he got into the habit of taking his mitten off and thrusting the hand inside his shirt so as to rest the thumb in the warmth of his armpit. A mail carrier came over the trail, and Morganson let him pass. A mail carrier was an important person, and was sure to be missed immediately. We'll return with our story right after these sponsor messages. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. And now back to our story. On the first day after his last flower had gone, it snowed. It was always warm when the snow fell, and he sat out the whole eight hours of daylight on the bank without movement, terribly hungry and terribly patient for all the world like a monstrous spider waiting for its prey. But the prey never came, and he hobbled back to the tent through the darkness, drank quarts of spruce tea and hot water, and went to bed. The next morning circumstance eased its grip on him. As he started to come out of the tent, he saw a huge bull moose crossing the swale some four hundred yards away. Morganson felt a surge and bound of the blood in him, and then went unaccountably weak. A nausea overpowered him, and he was compelled to sit down a moment to recover. Then he reached for his rifle and took careful aim. The first shot was a hit, he knew it, but the moose turned and broke for the wooded hillside that came down to the swale. Morganson pumped bullets wildly among the trees and brush at the fleeing animal, until it dawned upon him that he was exhausting the ammunition he needed for the sled load of life for which he waited. He stopped shooting and watched. He noted the direction of the animal's flight, and, high up on the hillside, in an opening among the trees, saw the trunk of a fallen pine. Continuing the moose's flight in his mind, he saw that it must pass the trunk. He resolved on one more shot, and in the empty air above the trunk he aimed and steadied his wavering rifle. The animal sprang into his field of vision, with lifted forelegs as it took the leap. He pulled the trigger. With the explosion... The moose seemed to somersault in the air. It crashed down to earth in the snow beyond and flurried the snow into dust. Morganson dashed up the hillside. At least he started to dash up. The next he knew he was coming out of a faint and dragging himself to his feet. He went up more slowly, pausing from time to time to breathe and to steady his reeling senses. At last he crawled over the trunk. The moose lay before him. He sat down heavily upon the carcass and laughed. He buried his face in his mittened hands and laughed some more. He shook the hysteria from him. He drew his hunting knife and worked as rapidly as his injured thumb and weakness would permit him. He did not stop to skin the moose, but corded it with its hide on. It was a Klondike of meat. 
When he had finished, he selected a piece of meat weighing a hundred pounds and started to drag it down to the tent. But the snow was soft, and it was too much for him. He exchanged it for a twenty-pound piece, and with many pauses to rest, succeeded in getting it to the tent. He fried some of the meat, but ate sparingly. Then, and automatically, he went out to his crouching place on the bank. There were sled tracks in the fresh snow on the trail. The sled load of life had passed by while he had been cutting up the moose. But he did not mind. He was glad that the sled had not passed before the coming of the moose. The moose had changed his plans. Its meat was worth fifty cents a pound, and he was but little more than three miles from Minto. He need no longer wait for the sled load of life. The moose was the sled load of life. He would sell it. He would buy a couple of dogs at Minto, some food and some tobacco, and the dogs would haul him south along the trail to the sea, the sun, and civilization. He felt hungry. The dull, monotonous ache of hunger had now become a sharp and insistent pang. He hobbled back to the tent and fried a slice of meat. After that he smoked two whole pipefuls of dried tea leaves. Then he fried another slice of moose. He was aware of an unwanted glow of strength and went out and chopped some firewood. He followed that up with a slice of meat. Teased on by the food, his hunger grew into an inflammation. It became imperative every little while to fry a slice of meat. He tried smaller slices and found himself frying oftener. In the middle of the day, he thought of the wild animals that might eat his meat, and he climbed the hill, carrying along his axe, the haul rope, and a sled lashing. In his weak state, the making of the catch and storing of the meat was an all-afternoon task. He cut young saplings, trimmed them, and tied them together into a tall scaffold. It was not so strong a catch as he would have desired to make, but he had done his best. To hoist the meat to the top was heartbreaking. The larger pieces defied him until he passed the rope over a limb above, and, with one end fast to a piece of meat, put all his weight on the other end. Once back in the tent, he proceeded to indulge in a prolonged and solitary orgy. He did not need friends. His stomach and he were company. Slice after slice, and many slices of meat, he fried and ate. He ate pounds of the meat. He brewed real tea, and brewed it strong. He brewed the last he had. It did not matter. On the morrow, he would be buying tea and minto. When it seemed he could eat no more, he smoked. He smoked all of a stock of dried tea leaves. What of it? On the morrow he'd be smoking tobacco. He knocked out his pipe, fried a final slice, and went to bed. He had eaten so much he seemed bursting, yet he got out of his blankets and had just one more mouthful of meat. In the morning he woke us from the sleep of death. In his ears were strange sounds. He did not know where he was, and looked about him stupidly until he caught sight of the frying pan with the last piece of meat in it, partly eaten. Then he remembered all, and with a quick start, turned his attention to the strange sounds. He sprang from the blankets with an oath. His scurvy-ravaged legs gave under him, and he winced with the pain. He proceeded more slowly to put on his moccasins and leave the tent. From the catch up the hillside arose a confused noise of snapping and snarling, punctuated by occasional short, sharp yelps. 
he increased his speed at much expense of pain, and cried loudly and threateningly. He saw the wolves hurrying away through the snow and underbrush, many of them, and he saw the scaffold down on the ground. The animals were heavy with the meal they'd eaten, and they were content to slink away and leave the wreckage. The way of the disaster was clear to him. The wolves had scented his catch. One of them had leapt from the trunk of the fallen tree to the top of the catch. He could see marks of the brute's paws in the snow that covered the trunk. He had not dreamt that a wolf could leap so far. A second had followed the first, and a third, and a fourth, until the flimsy scaffold had gone down under their weight and movement. His eyes were hard and savage for a moment as he contemplated the extent of the calamity. Then the old look of patience returned into them, and they began to gather together the bones well picked and gnawed. There was marrow in them, he knew, and also here and there, as he sifted the snow, he found scraps of meat that had escaped the maws of the brutes made careless by plenty. He spent the rest of the morning dragging the wreckage of the moose down the hillside. In addition, he had at least ten pounds left of the chunk of meat he had dragged down the previous day. "'I'm good for weeks yet,' was his comment as he surveyed the heap. He had learned how to starve and live. He cleaned his rifle and counted the cartridges that remained to him. There were seven. He loaded the weapon and hobbled out to his crouching place on the bank. All day he watched the dead trail. He watched all the week. But no life passed over it. We'll return next week with Part 2 of Fini by Jack London. I hope you enjoyed this Part 1 of the story. If you did, please send us a review for 1001's Best of Jack London. We also appreciate your sharing our show with others. Until next Sunday night at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.